Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? We are in a series called Uniquely Luke. These are teachings, parables, stories that are only found in the gospel of Luke. Today, it is Luke 13, verses one through nine. Here we go. Here we go. (laughs) About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee, Jesus asks? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there was any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I'll give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. If we we get figs next year, fine. If not, then you can cut it down. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. You are very direct, and I pray that you would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying. Please, God, wash our hearts with the truth. Wash us of the the deception of the day and the culture that we live in. Wash us that we might experience the real presence of God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of the message today is Responding to God. Point one is the world is broken. What is going on here with the disciples is they are wanting to defend the character of God and the goodness of God, and so they have a theology of how things work in the world, that bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people, and, and all of this, this is, this is deeply internalized. This is how you guys think of it, that, that these people that, that Pilate murdered while they're giving sacrifices, they were obviously really evil people, and Jesus said, it's not like that. It's, it's not the way you think it is. And then he's, he's reading the, the, the news of the day. These, these 18, the Tower of Siloam fell on 18 people and, and they died. And, and the, the idea that the, the Tower took those 18, wow, those, God must have been mad at them. They are really bad people. Jesus said, you think you're better than them? Uh-uh. That's not how, it's not how the world works. This is deeply ingrained into the disciples. Look at, look at John chapter nine, verses one and three. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. If somebody is born blind, there's clearly, it's gotta, because God is good and God is just, this must trace back to sins. It must be either their parents' sins that have passed down and that's why he was born blind, or uh, maybe somehow this little guy sinned while he was in the womb, God was displeased, so he was born blind. Who sinned? Because this is how the world works. Bad things happen to bad people. And Jesus says, guys, the world is broken. Why, why is this person born blind? Why is their DNA that is so broken that people are born with diseases, uh, susceptible to addiction, that there's all kinds of stuff that is absolutely broken in this world? Was it this man's sin or neither one? Neither, neither one. This is just because this, the world's broken. Sin is in this world, and the original sin broke this world. There's hurricanes, there's earthquakes. This is the world that we are living in, and this is the test that God has given us. It is very tempting to try to clean up this world especially as the people of God, to make the world something that it is not, to make it all about this is how it works, this is how God works, and, and, and this, is, this is what happened in the book of Job. Job is one of the five wisdom literature books. Um, Tim Mackey, who does the Bible Project, and he's got something on all of the books, and he's got several special ones introducing whole sections, and here's what he says about the wisdom literature. He says, Psalms and Proverbs tell us how it should be. Job and Ecclesiastes give all the exceptions. It doesn't always fit into your little, the way you think it should be and the way God should act. It's, I'm, it's hilarious to me in the book of Job. For 36 chapters, Job friends give argument after argument after argument about how God is good and that, that God punishes bad people and, 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 and that Job has to be a bad person. He has to have done something wicked because he is obviously suffering and this is how God has set it up and everybody knows that. And, and the, the 36 chapters, they go on and on and on and on and on. And then in, in Job 42, 7, here's what God says to 36 chapters of arguments. Uh, your friends were wrong. What they said about me, what they said about how the world works was wrong. It is very easy to try to tame God with our theology. Job 41, one through five. Can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it keep begging you for mercy? Will it speak to you with gentle words? Will it make an agreement with you for you to take it as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of it like a bird or put it on a leash for the young women in your house? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. 
The mere sight of it is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse it. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So God, in his response to Job in all of these chapters, he has a couple chapters, and in these chapters, he, he teaches about himself through things that God has made. And when he gets to Leviathan, and, and of course there's questions about Leviathan. Some think it's a crocodile. My own feeling is, I don't know, it says it's overpowering. Just to look at it is overpowering. I, I think it's probably an animal that has gone extinct. But the point of it is the same, either whatever you think it is. God is saying this. I have created some animals wild on purpose. They are to teach something. You can't, you can't train them. You can't put them on a leash. You can't make them your slave. They are wild because I made them wild. And it was because I wanted to teach you something about myself. You can't put me in a box. You can't tell me how I'm supposed to be and how I'm supposed to do it. I'm taking counsel from none of you. I am God. Take me as I am. Stop trying to control me. Stop trying to tame me. I am God. So I have a friend who's been a friend for years, and he, he last year we had this conversation. He decided that he is now an atheist. And so we're having this conversation. I'm like, dude, um, you know, it's a big step to become an atheist. An atheist is somebody who actively believes there's not a God. At least an agnostic has the humility to say, I'm not sure if there's a God. But an atheist is, there is not a God. This is, I actively believe that. And I said, what possible evidence do you have to present that there isn't a God? Here's what he said. Child born in Africa with a disease that ends up starving to death because his mom can't feed it. End of story right there. That, I said, that's your whole argument. Yeah, a there can't be a loving, all-powerful God and have a world like we have. Therefore, there can't be a God. I said, so, so, so let me get this straight. Because if you were God and you had all of God's powers and all of God's love, you would not allow a world like the world we currently have. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Have you ever thought, have you ever thought about the wisdom of God? Do you know that we don't know how a seed works? We don't know how the, a, a tree can be locked up in this seed. You plant this seed and a tree appears. We have no idea how a seed works. Is it possible that the all-wise God has thoughts that are bigger than your thoughts and plans and purposes that you can't fathom, that in an eternal perspective, that what God is doing in this time is beyond your current knowledge? Folks, it's really important to understand that we're, 
we're not God. We've got, we, we see things very, very limited. This is the world God has us in right now. It is a very broken world. It's gonna last for a very, very brief time. But we, we have to look at the mystery of why things are the way they are. And instead of going to a place of unbelief, Instead of going to this antagonistic place of, uh, of there can't be a God, God calls us to trust him in the mystery of why things are the way they are now and let the mystery bring us into a place of worship that he is other than us. Listen to this from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I want us for a moment to just pause Father, would you settle our minds to try to figure everything out? Father, would you set our hearts at peace, that hearts that want to explain everything and tame you by getting you in a box, a box that you will never fit in. Break our boxes and help us worship rightly. We pray, God, in Jesus' name, amen. The world is broken. Here's point two. God wants the fruit of repentance. It is human nature to be concerned about everybody else's life. What about these people? What about these people? What about these people? Here's what Jesus says. Uh, you're, you're no better than they are. They're no worse than you are, but you need to repent or you will perish. Don't you love Jesus trying to win influence and love, you know, just kind of, no, just this is, this is how it is. This is how it is. God wants the fruit of repentance in each of our lives. We all need to pay attention, not to what our spouse is doing, not to what our kids or our parents are, or we need to pay attention to our own spiritual life. God wants the fruit of of repentance, and not just a life that has a religious look. Look at Luke chapter three, verses eight and nine. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. Now, he, this is to the Pharisees. This is John the Baptist to the Pharisees. And he's saying this. Don't think that just because you, you're religious and you know doctrine and you sing the songs um, that, you're, that you're okay. It, you, you, you need to repent. 
You, your, your life needs to be different. Your life can't just be outwardly religious and lack repentance. What is connected to Jesus saying, it, it, you too will perish if you don't repent, is this story about the, 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 the gardener and the owner of this, this fig tree, uh, this, fig, this fig garden. And the owner says, um, I, I, I'm, the, I'm the creator, I'm the one that owns all of this field and I want a harvest from it. And for three years I've come, I've looked for fruit and there's none here, cut it down. And the gardener says, give it a little more time. I will work even harder on it. I will fertilize it, I will water it, I will care for it. And then if it still doesn't bring forth fruit, then go ahead and cut it down. God is looking for fruit from our lives, the fruit of repentance, true repentance, confesses, confesses sin sincerely to God and receives grace to turn from self and sin. Here's 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. We're going to talk later, right at the end, about worldly sorrow. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. When we agree with God about our sin and we have a sorrow because we have broken a relationship with God, we have, we have hurt God, we have sinned against God and God alone, we have displeased him by our, by our thoughts, by our actions, by whatever, and we come into agreement with God about what he says and we experience the sorrow of hurting the heart of God by breaking this relationship, what God does is he pours out grace. Proverbs 1.22 says, turn to my reproof and I will pour out my spirit on you. There is a grace that activates our heart to leave sin. It activates our hearts to want to change, to want to be different, to go a different way. It is not this confession of just, it's wrong, but I'm gonna keep doing it. It is, there is power to change, power to be different. True repentance, which it says in 2 Timothy 2, is granted by God. God grants true repentance when we come into agreement with him with something called godly sorrow and it produces a change in our life. Here is Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Blessed is the one who trembles before God, but whoever hardens their heart falls into trouble. So I grew up religious. We were at church every single Sunday, and I went through catechism and got, and, and, but it was a theology, and I'm not saying that everybody in our church was like this, but I was like this. I'm just saying, talking about me. 
it was a theology where I did whatever I want to, Monday through Saturday, and then I confessed my sins on Sunday and went right back Monday through Saturday to do the same thing and planned on it. But I was told that I'm okay. I took the communion. Um, I would go to the priest and confess my sins. He'd say, do five Hail Marys for our fathers. And, 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 and then I'm good to go. I'm, I'm good to go. And this is, this is the, the system. And it, it was a religion without repentance. And here's the funny thing. As a young man, I knew it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't right. I, I planned to do the exact same things, go to the same parties. Do, I'd say, I'm, I'm sorry for this, 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 and this, but I know I'm planning to do the exact same thing. He who conceals his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses them, that is the first part, agreeing with God about it, and renounces them and says, God, not only am I sorry, but I don't want to do them anymore. I want to go a different way. I want to live before you in a pleasing way. That person obtains the mercy of God, but whoever hardens his heart, that person is going to fall into trouble. We are in a lot of trouble right now in America. A few weeks ago, I had somebody come into my office and he, he, he just said the, this phrase. He said, everyone is welcome at God's restaurant, but you don't get to change the menu. That's what he said. Everyone's welcome at God's restaurant, but you don't get to change the menu. So at the Intimacy with God conference, I, I elaborated on this and, and here, here's how it works. So God has this restaurant and um, Jesus is the host. He welcomes you at the door. I'm so glad you're here, just as you are. Come just as you are. I, I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Jesus is the one who seats us at the table. And soon somebody will come and wait on you. And that's Jesus too. He is so happy you're there. He, and, and he's also at the table with you. And, um, but, but God has a menu. And he doesn't take any special orders. He will give you an appetite for what is on his menu. Jesus is also the cook, by the way. And what he's making for you is a masterpiece, which means it's going to take a little longer than other dishes. But you can have communion with him while you're at his table. He's so happy to have you at this restaurant. Everything's free. And it's, that's kind of a deceptive word, free. Because it's, it's only free because it's been paid for. Jesus shed his blood on the cross so that everything God has, every gift he has, every blessing he has comes to us for free. There's everything's at that table. Provision, grace for trials, wisdom, the fruits of the spirit. Oh my, love, joy. They're all, they're all there. The gifts of the spirit, they're all there. They're all at this table. But there's no special orders. What do I mean by special orders? Well, so it turns out that part of our test is there's another restaurant in town and it's right next to God's restaurant. And this one's run by the devil. In this, in this restaurant, there are no menus. <laughs> Everything is made to order. However you want it, he'll make it. 
there is a very high cost in this restaurant, even though everyone's welcome. However, he doesn't take cash. You cannot pay right away. Everything's on credit. So everything in the devil's restaurant, you can have it right now, and you just put it on credit. Brett Hollis was at the Intimacy with God, and he just said this statement. He said, everything that happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, except for the debt. (laughs) Whatever losses you have are going to come back and haunt you. And I added at the intimacy, I said, but it's not just debt, it's shame. Whatever you tried to keep in Vegas that is shameful, the shame of it, the guilt of it follows you and you didn't count on that. And this is what the Bible says in Hebrews 11, that there's pleasure in sin for a season. There's this promise of immediately, immediate pleasure and you don't have to pay for it right now. Don't worry about the cost. So here's what our culture does. They find out about God's love, they find out about come as you are, and they're like, oh my, I so want, I need for God's forgiveness, I need his love, I'm coming to that restaurant, I'm so happy. And I'm praying the prayer, praying the prayer to ask Jesus into my life, I'm so happy to be God's, I'm so happy to be forgiven, and, and then they put in a special order. Oh, by the way, God, um, I'm also going to continue to be immoral. I'm gonna continue to sleep with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. I'm gonna continue to involve, be involved in fornication or, or pornography or I'm, and God, that's, that's my special. I do love you and I am yours, but I, I've got this. Or it's, God, I, I do love you and I, I am yours, but I will not give up this grudge I've got against my father, mother, ex. I am going to be bitter because it wouldn't be right to forgive them. And so I, I am in, I am your child, but I'm not letting go of that, that special order. Uh, or it's idolatry. It's, it's God, yeah, I, I'm yours, but this is more important to me than you, and I'll come to church when I can, and I'll be yours when I can, but this is what really runs my life, and what comforts my life, and what I live for, but uh, I, I know you'll understand that, and, and it's a special order called idolatry, and so here's what Jesus says. He says, there's a restaurant right next door that will provide that. That's actually one of the big things on their menu. One of the made-to-orders is this. In the last days, Paul says, this is 2 Timothy 3, people will have a form of godliness, but deny the power of being godly. This, this is, you can make to order your own religion. You can, you can add as little. See, we, we're Americans. We're consumers. We love buffets. Yes, I want that. Yes, I want that. Ugh, I don't want that. Yes, I want that. No, I don't want that. We take and pick and choose. And when you do this with your religion, you're going to end up at the wrong restaurant. It's called Deception. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, listen, deceiving yourself. Hear it. Many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, that won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And I will say to them, depart from me, you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You wanted special orders for you. And you, you kept being religious, had a little religion, a little song here, Christian music, little, but you were just living your own life, doing your own thing, and you've got your own Jesus. 
that, is, that isn't the real, the real one. The real one has power for us to be godly. God, power, power to change our lives. So we are at intimacy with God and we're doing an altar time and this very precious, sincere woman comes up to me and she says this, um, God has told me to stop drinking and I keep going back to it. And he says, stop drinking and I keep going back to it. She said, what should I do? This is the type of questions pastors get. I said, honey, here's what you need to do. If God's told you to stop drinking, you need to stop drinking. It doesn't matter that it's okay for other people, but in your specific case, no. You need to stop drinking. You need to do whatever you can. You need to join a group. You need to do whatever. But the, uh, I know what she wanted. She wanted something else from God. She wanted God to speak something else. I, I'm tired of that one. He keeps telling me to stop drinking. Alcohol's destroying my life, but uh, I don't want to do that one. Is there something else that I could do? And that's not how it works. It, it, it's, it's like the dad whose son is into baseball, just loves baseball, and the dad's not that interested in baseball, but he loves his son. So he says this to his son. He says, son, clean your room, and tonight I'm going to take you to the ball game. And this kid is so excited about going to the ball game. And, and dad's just as excited. He's excited not about the ball game, but about being with his son. And so, uh, so an hour later, the kid's got his cap on. He's got his t-shirt on. He's got the glove on. Dad, let's go to the, the ball game. What is that, dad? What's the first thing dad's going to say to him? Did you clean your room? Because I got news for you, folks. If he hasn't cleaned his room, they're not going to that ball game. <laughs> The unpleasant thing that has been told has to be acted on for the promises to come true. God is, there's no one more generous than God, guys. He is absolutely generous. He withholds no good thing from those that walk uprightly. But he's not changing for you. He's not going to change. He's not going to change who he is or how he works. It's, you say, well, that's legalism. That is legalism, Pastor. No, it's relationship. It's just how relationships work. If God is speaking something to you, then you need to do that thing. He has grace for you to do that thing. Get about doing it. And then get excited about going to the ball game. So that's point two. Here's point three. Learning from the Jewish people. So the, the bigger theology of this passage is Jesus is talking about the Jewish people. Jesus has come not for the Gentiles, but for the Jews. His ministry is for the Jews first, and he, that he traveled through Israel. And so he's speaking of his ministry to the Jews. It was three and a half year ministry. And he has ministered for three years, and the father says, um, cut it down. And Jesus says, no, let's give it more time. I will give more kindness, more love, more fertilizer, more miracles, more beauty, more, more, more. Let's do everything we can for them to turn around and give their lives back to God. Everything they can to leave just being religious outwardly to being real and being aligned with God's purpose. And so this is, 
This is about the Jewish people, but we can learn from it. First, what can we learn? First, Jesus is very conscious that judgment is coming, and very soon it will be too late. The Jewish people, Luke 19, 41 through 44, this is right at the end, right before Passover. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The word time there is kairos. It is the opportunity that God gave you. God gave you an opportunity to repent, an opportunity to realign with God. That time came and that time is gone. And Jesus, he knows everything. He sees not just the present decisions we're making and the the present opportunities we're squandering. He also sees the result of those decisions. So he's weeping. God doesn't want anybody to experience judgment. He weeps over it. I don't like that, that that their time ran out. I don't like that that time can run out and that it becomes too late. Well, this is another situation where you're not, we're not God. We're not God. We don't get to say when time runs out. But God is looking for something. Here's the word to us. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time, Kairos. Now is the opportunity of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Folks, this is our time. The window is open. God is wanting to pour out favor. He's wanting to pour out salvation. He's wanting to pour out his goodness. Paul's saying, don't squander this time. I'm a coworker. I'm giving you God's message. Don't listen to it in vain. Respond to God. He is waiting to pour out his favor and his Holy Spirit on you. Secondly, how can we learn from the Jews? First time, there is a time when it runs out. Secondly, we must respond to his love. Look at Romans 2, 4 and 5. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is written to the Romans. Um, There's two groups in Rome, the Gentiles and the Jews. This is the part that is to the Jewish Christians. They're Jews in name, or Christian in name, but they become very hard. And some of them are returning to the old ways. And he says, listen, God's love, his patience, and his tolerance are meant to lead you to repentance. 
God has done everything. This is him working the soil. This is him watering you. This is him fertilizing you. This is him getting your attention with his discipline. This is him turning the soil over. He's cheering for us. Come on, come on, let's, let's do this. And I want you to see the goodness of God in punishment. Here's what he says. Because of your stubbornness and hardness of heart, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. God's not looking forward to punishing anybody. He's not storing up judgment for you. He stores up blessings for you. He stores up favor for you. But you chose no. You resisted. You said no, 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 no. And so at some point, his mercy is going to lead to his judgment because you decided to embrace a religion that had no repentance in it. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter nine, right after he says, um, we, this, is, this happened so that the works of redemption might be seen in him. The reason why he's born blind, the reason why it, it's, it's, I can't explain all that, but from my perspective, it's so that he can be redeemed, so that the works of redemption can be seen. He turns to his disciples, and this is what he says. This is John chapter nine, verse four. He says this. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because the night is coming when no one can work. Right now, it's daytime. It is the time of God's favor. And we must co-labor with him to, to bring the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the love of God. We are workers with God to turn the soil over. You say, well, how is God being patient and kind? Through Christians? How is God appealing to me? I'm appealing right now. I'm appealing right now. This is God's appeal. Uh, respond to me. I love you. I'm for you. But you need to respond to me. Why? Because the night is coming when nobody can work. Jesus, Jesus just lived his life this way. There is a judgment coming, and when that happens, it's too late. Like it or not, that's how it is. This whole time here of this broken world is a very brief time in the plan of God. It's a very brief time, and we're being tested. Everything happening right now is meant to bring us to him. You and I and this church, we need to join him in his works of redemption. We need to join him in the proclaiming the goodness of God and, and, and pray for the healing of God and miracles and demons cast out and, and, and we're, we're part of turning the soil over in this culture and, and pouring rain on it and weeding it out and, and, and th th that's part of who we are because why? Because they can't see the night's coming. We can. And so we need to join him while it's still day. And we need to be active in our faith. We need to not only repent ourselves, but now we need to be part of that co-laboring with the message of God. And then finally, they didn't draw near to God. Look at Luke 11, or Luke 13, 34 and 35. So the same chapter, right at the end. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often ha I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. 
Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the whole heart of God of this time. He wants to gather us close. One translation says that the longing, I have longed to gather you in the same way a a hen, a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I want you close to me. But you were not willing. I'm gonna ask the uh, worship team to come back and I I wanna give you the two pictures that define worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance, which leads to life and salvation. Worldly sorrow ends in death. So here are the two definitions of worldly sorrow. Number one, the victim. The victim says this. I am sorry that what I'm doing is wrong. But you made me this way, and this is my life, and I can't help but do it because I am a victim, and therefore I I refuse to come near to you. In fact, I'm mad at you. I'm mad at you that this is how I am, and I refuse to turn from how I am because I am a victim, and I refuse to be drawn near to you. But I am sorry that it's wrong because this is my, what I like to do. Here's what Jesus says. My dear beloved child, I see how you're broken. I see all the ways you've sinned. But I'm calling you near, and here's why I'm calling you to near. Here's why I want you to gather, I wanna gather you, because I have grace for you to overcome. Every brokenness, every sin, every tendency, I'm called you to be an overcomer. But you have to come near me to receive overcoming grace. Folks, everybody in this building will either, you will either paint yourself as a victim or as an overcomer. You decide that. The idea that you're so sinful that God could never have you, get over yourself. (laughs) Depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus is like Peter, you have no idea. It's way worse than you think it is. But don't worry, because I'm gonna make you a fisher of men. I'm looking at my grace. I'm looking at my beauty. I'm looking at what I can make you. God's calling you to be an overcomer. He's calling me to be an overcomer. How do you do it? Let him draw you. (laughs) He longs to gather you longs to gather you under his wings. Agree with God about whatever he's saying and say, come on, Lord, let's do this. Make me an overcomer. There's a second group of people that experience worldly sorrow that ends in death. And these are the martyrs. Here's, the, here's how the martyr, martyr spirit works. I agree with God that it's wrong. I agree with what I've done is wrong. In fact, it's so wrong, I don't deserve forgiveness. In fact, I can't forgive myself. And so I will pay the punishment that I deserve. 
I will live in condemnation. I will live in self-hatred. I will cut myself. I will, might even kill myself like Judas did. But I will, I'm so bad, I'm so horrible, and what I did was so wrong that I deserve this, and I'm applying that justice to myself. Here's what Jesus says to you, my child. I died for you. I took the punishment for your sin. There is no judgment for sin in me. I've, well, there is, but I took it. Guys, the believer's judgment is not where you stand before God and God sends all your sins before you. No, that judgment already happened. It happened on the cross. Believer's judgment is the time God gives you his praise for all the good works you did. It's a time to be excited about as a Christian. Yesterday, Daniel Jerom spoke to our men about sexual impurity and calling us to be pure. And, and at the end, I, I, got, I asked Earl if I could pray a prayer for the men because I know the way men's hearts work. And I prayed something like this. It was about the woman caught in the act of adultery, the very act of adultery. And Jesus said these words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The reason why they brought her was because the law said that she should die. Immorality deserved death. She, she should be stoned. That's what the law said. For Jesus to say, neither do I condemn you and uphold the law, it means he has to die for her. It's the only way he can do it. The only one that can give you forgiveness is the one who died for you. He died already for those sins. And he wants to forgive you. Well, Pastor Tom, I can see that God might want to forgive me, but I could never forgive myself. Stop being so holy. You're not holier than God. Don't be more righteous than God. Jesus died for your sins. He could forgive you whatever you've done and however long you did it. That's what the blood of Jesus does. He took that punishment. Stop doing an end run, uh, end run around the cross and living in condemnation and punishment and flame because I deserve it. Stop it. Yes, you do deserve it. Jesus took it for you. Let him take it for you. Here's what I said to the men. You will never go and sin no more until you believe the words, neither do I condemn you. If you live in shame and condemnation, I've, I've asked God to forgive me, but, I, but I'm, I'm not really believing God's forgiveness. I'm not really agreeing with his forgiveness. You will end up back in it. If you feel dirty, you'll do dirty. In fact, if you don't make a distinction between temptation and sin, you will end up right back there because if temptation makes me dirty, oh my. Guys, as long as you have a sin nature and as long as there's demons in the world, you're going to be tempted. You're going to be tempted in a thousand different ways. Temptation is not sin. Temptation doesn't make you dirty. Temptation means that as long as you're in this world, there's going to be a knock on your door continually that says sin, 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 worry, commit idolatry, be bitter, be, be, comfort yourself with fornication. There will always be a knock. Just having that knock doesn't make you dirty. You're a child of God. You're a favored child of God. How dare the devil knock at your door? You tell him to get away. You tell him to get away. It doesn't make you unclean to be tempted. Well, I had a dream, and in this dream I was horrible. Uh, okay, it's just a dream. You didn't choose that. That came to you. 
Get up in the morning and tell the devil to leave in Jesus' name. You're not interested. It's not my identity. I'm a child of God. I'm under the favor of God, and I'm forgiven by God. And honestly, the worst your sin is, the longer you've lived condemning and punishing yourself, the sweeter the blood of Jesus becomes to you. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is why he came, folks. This is why he came. This is what's in his heart for every single person here. He loves you. He died for you. And everything that's happened in your life is to one end, that he would draw you into intimacy with himself. He has a longing for you and I to be close. Now, why that is, I, I can't figure that out. I just know it's true. And here's what I like to do. You want me close, you want me so close that I'm under your wing. You can't have a picture of greater intimacy than a chick under his, her mother's wing. It's the closest, protected, warm place. So here's what I say, Lord, you have a longing to gather me. Have at it. Go ahead, here I am, your little chick. All I have to do is admit I'm just a little chick. I'm not a great warrior, I'm a little chick. Come on, gather your chick. Bring me in. If this is what you wanna do, bring me in. There's a feast, the Bible says, under his wings. There's a river of delight under his wings. World can't see it, a lot of the church can't see it, but there is, there is a feast that he's prepared under the wings of Jesus.